That sounds so uncomfortable to me that I can't even put it in words. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again. No Ben today, unfortunately, but we do have a special guest that I'm excited to talk to. Uh, Tim, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. We are going to be talking about sleep at events, why it's so important, how do you do it, and how? what are your options for getting a good night's sleep. I do want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and a special thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, Michael. Thank you very much. Tim, let's just jump right into it. Um, why don't you kind of introduce yourself to the listeners, explain um, kind of how you got interested in World War II, how you got interested in World War II reenacting, and sort of uh, what you do in World War II reenacting now. Yeah, sure. So my interests and hobby in World War Two, I would have they could have started off when I was five years old when I got an action band as a kid. But I think it probably all started off um, at the age of seventeen, and um, that's when I joined the the army. I was in the British Army for ten years. Throughout the British Army, we always used to go away to to, to Germany. We used to do a bunch of training over there. I always had an interest in in World War Two, and when we used to go over to Germany, we used to go on battle tours and everything like that. I left the army in two thousand and sixteen. And I always wanted to carry on doing an outdoor role, outdoor pursuits. And the easiest way to carry on doing that was to go into reenacting. Um, I couldn't join the Territorial Army or Reserve Army because of the weekend work that they have to do over in the UK. So I went over to a very large, um, large reenactment show called War and Peace that's over in Kent. And uh, that's when I came across a very large group called the Second Battle Group. And that's when everything really started for me, really. From then onwards, I joined the group. Um, my position has been an infantier, uh, and I've been doing it for, for many years now. So uh, 10 years in the British Army, that must have been uh, quite an experience, and I imagine that that must have given you a lot of uh, experience that kind of informs your, your approach to historical military reenacting as well. It does, yeah. Um, it, it does make it a little bit easier within, within, uh, you know, within reenacting and everything. Um, you know, when, when the going gets tough, it's, it's, it's not as tough as what it might be if, if, if someone hasn't done it before in the past. Sure. Yeah. I imagine there must be a lot of perspective that comes with kind of having having lived that life, having lived in the field, you know, in kind of a, a real life situation. You mentioned uh, the second battle group that you joined. Um, I remember when I before I ever got started in reenacting, when I was just kind of like a World War Two fan in the 90s when I was in high school, um, hearing about second battle group as sort of this legendary reenacting formation in England, of course, um, reading like newspaper media articles about that unit's participation in uh, the filming of the movie Saving Private Ryan. And then later on, when I kind of got into sort of reenacting and looking at websites and stuff, always seeing great pictures of uh, Second Battle Group showing up in large numbers with armored vehicles at public events. How was it that you kind of uh, got started with Second Battle Group? So as soon as I left the Army in 2016, um, I went to the large War and Peace show. Um, I, I went dressed up as a civilian, um, just in, in, in norm, normal attire, and, and while walking around, um, you know, you sort of see these reenactors, and you think to yourself, wow, I, I, that's something I, re I really want to be part of. 
And while I was walking along one of the displays, that's when I, that's when I came across the group. And it was then that I realized that what I want actually exists. Um, and, and I joined the group very shortly after that. That's really cool. I think that's a great way for people to get into reenacting, to go to a public event and see the different units and um, their reenactment styles and kind of what they present and see what unit is a good fit for the style of reenacting that, that they feel like they want to do. Uh, how many events do you go to every year usually? Unfortunately for myself, due to work commitments in the UK, um, I only usually tend to, um, I go to about four to five shows each year. These are usually large public shows. I don't really attend many of the private ones as such, because when it comes down to me booking time off work, I want to try and save it for the really large shows. That makes sense. You feel like the the big public events that you do, they, they attract the most uh, people maybe, they... Uh you know, maybe more reenactors. That's exactly it. And and what, the good thing is when we go to the, the large shows, you know, within the group ourselves, we've got so many vehicles, we've got all the weapons. And when we go to the, the large shows, we take everything along with us. You know, we've got Sturg, we've got the half tracks, we've got Flak, we've got packs, we've got, you know, all the ground crew. And when you do those reenactment shows um, and, you, and you do the battle scenarios, and when you've got all those people and the pyrotechnics and everything moving along, it just makes it so much better than, than, than the sort of smaller private events where you don't really tend to have as, as, as much tracked vehicles and everything there. And then, you know, when you've got the crowd and everyone surrounding you and where the pyrotechnics are going off and you, you, you can hear and you can you know, sense the, the crowd's reaction, it, it, it does make it a little bit more exciting. That's cool. I, I myself, I don't get to as many public events as I used to, but I certainly have uh, participated in some in the past. And I relate to what you're saying, where the show that is put on for the public can also be really exciting for the reenactors as well, especially when you have, like you say, all of this armor and big guns going off and the pyrotechnics. It certainly can feel um, realistic at times, you know, depending on the setting, depending on exactly what you're doing. It does, yeah, and it, and it kind of uh, coincides with two things. So, you know, within within reenacting, in my own opinion, you've got two sides to it. You've got the, the reenacting side of it, and then you've got the living history side of it. Well, most people always do the reenacting side of it, but not everyone does the living history side. So with the reenacting, some people go off to, well, in the UK, we call it plastic camping. Um, I'm sure you've got a, a similar term for it over in the US, where the plastic camping is normal civilian tents. So you'll go over there and then, you, you know, at the nighttime, you'll, you'll sleep over there. And then in the daytime, you'll attend some of the battle, the reenactments and everything like that. And then you sort of fade away in, in, until that happens again. But the living history side of it is where you're sort of, you're put into a 1944 scenario where you're sleeping in the Zelts, you're living the history of it, and you're doing the battle reenactments at the same time. That's interesting. The event style that you're describing is one that I've like heard about. Uh, things like the War and Peace show, these large UK public displays that attract maybe hundreds of reenactors and thousands of spectators and all of these vehicles and hardware and vendors and everything. But I've never been to an event in the UK and I've, I've never really been to an event exactly like that style. Um, could you maybe just describe kind of what those events are like, how they work and what it feels like to go to one of those events as a participant? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at um, one of the larger shows that I attend every single year, which is uh, Military Odyssey. Um, Military Odyssey is a, is a fantastic show. You've got well, unfortunately, last year we didn't have the Russian reenactors, but fingers crossed, if everything sorts itself out by becoming the SEO, so you've got the American reenactors, you've got your Russian, you've got your German, but you've also got medieval reenactors and everything there. And when you're walking around the showground, 
you can see all the living history displays as well. So you can see all the equipment, all the vehicles, all the tents. Um, and, and, and when you look into that, each, um, each unit, each display have got their, you know, they, they have their own level of authenticity, but it, it looks literally like it's been placed into, you know, 1944 scenario. And then you, when you go around all the, all the displays, you can then go over to the, the, the vendors as well. Um, and, you know, military, obviously, they've got some fantastic vendors from all around Europe there. And, you know, you've got some of the, 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 more, the more famous people that are on TV, they're, they're all there as well. They're, you know, you, you can talk to them, you can interact with them. And then obviously you've got the battle arena as well. And, and the battle arena, it's not just the, the, the German side of it. They have other skirmishes. You can have private battles there as well. So there's always something for, for the crowd to, to walk around, interact, see and be part of. And also you can also, you know, buying stuff there as well. So there's a, there's a lot to do. It sounds really cool. It sounds kind of like a World War II convention, sort of. Yeah, I guess that's, that's one good way to put it. And look, I've got to ask you about the beer tents. You know, I've heard all of these uh, legendary <laughs> stories about it. What is, what, is this, what is the reality of this? Beer tents definitely do play um, a very large part in the reenactment shows that I go to. The, the, great, the great thing, I, 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 maybe it's just a, a British culture thing but um a beer tent is a is always a central hub in in, in the evening and you'll have we, we, we always tend to go dressed up to the beer tent um some shows get a bit funny if you're if you're reenactment ss some some shows won't you won't, won't let you wear runes when you go to the beer tent some will but normally what happens at the beer tent everyone gathers around in the evening everybody's dressed up you know you we, we the last show that i went to at military odyssey we had um, greg's marine lot and they're all dressed up in original uniforms so we have this massive beer tent we all get together. We all catch up with everybody. Um, we, we, we drink into the night, um, and it's, it's a, really, a really good vibe. Sounds like a lot of fun. It certainly is. I'm very much looking forward to the next show. Okay, well, let's get into our main topic now. Let's talk about sleep. For me, it's always been a bit of a tricky one, is how to do it properly, how to do it right. I started off um, reenacting. When I joined the group, I started off in just a, a normal civilian tent away from the site. And then when the show started, I'll, I'll come through my civilian tent. I'll go to the show dressed up ready. And at the end of the event, yeah, we'll have a couple of beers and I'll go back to my tent again. And I thought, well, all this walking to and from with all the equipment and all the gear, especially in the heat of summer, can get a little bit too much. So I thought, well, how can I make my life a little bit easier? So I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go on to a four-section Zalt tent. So that's what I did. So the next show that I went to, I had a, a four-section Zelt tent, um, and I, I, I sort of I, I slept in there, and I you know cur- cur- curled up like a dog as we all do, and it's it's not the most comfy of scenarios, but it's a little bit more, more you know authentic. And then after a couple of days, you know, I'm, I'm only 34 years old, but throughout the 10 years I did in the army, I thought to myself, you know, I need something, I need something a little bit more suitable. Um, so I thought, well, where do I go on from there? So I thought, okay, well, from the four. I'll go on to um, an eight, an eight section, an eight section Zelt tent. Now during this transition period, I did actually buy a caravan, so I thought, okay, well that's probably the way to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll take the caravan to and from. But the trouble is, I live in a city at the moment, and taking it to some of these events, sometimes there's a lot of you know thin tracks, muddy tracks, and it it can be a logistical nightmare taking it to and from the event. So the caravan lasted for one year, and then I went to the the eight the eight section a, Zelt a tent. A caravan. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but. Uh... I don't. No, I don't even really know what that is because I think we call that something else. It's uh, it's like a thing that you tow behind your car that you can sleep inside of. That's exactly it. So uh, think of it as a, a, a large living trailer. Okay. Yeah, we call that a camper. I now find this is a language difference. That's interesting. Interesting. So a camper. We we, we in the UK we've got camper vans, but they're usually um, motorized vehicles um, that, that, that you sleep in. Okay. 
Yeah, we call that an RV for a recreational vehicle. It's funny that we have different words for these things. So yeah, the the, the, the caravan was great, but the, you know it had its own problems, and I, I still then had to walk to and from the um, living history display to the caravan. But obviously, it was great if it ever did rain, then I've got a proper bed. So I thought, okay, well, that was great for one year. And then I thought, well, let's go back to the display again. So I then went over to the, the eight section Zelt setup, which was great. You know, you can lie down and it was, it was a lot more comfortable. You had more room to put all of your gear in. Um, so this is where the, the sleeping scenario started. What do you sleep on and how do you do it? Well, if you want to do it as authentically as you can do, we're not going to bring hay and straw to every single event and sleep on it that way. So what, what do I do? So I thought, well, let's buy a, a, a camp bed. So I started off with a, a very nice original 1940s camp bed, and it, it lasted for a few shows. Um, but, you know, it, the thing's 80 years old, and it, it started to rip and it started to break. So I thought, what do I, where do I go on from there? So from there onwards, I, I spent um, about £400 on a, on a very nice reproduction camp cot. Um, and this was at an event which was, I think it was last... No, two years ago. So we got to the got I got to the event. I set everything up. I set my Zelda, put my camp cot in there, went over to the beer tent, came back, crash, fell through wow. the whole thing. I then tried to put the I then tried to put the thing together after a few beers, and then I fell through it again. And then you heard this enormous rip. Oh my so god! I thought, oh, so then I, I spent the entire event sleeping sleeping on the floor, and I thought, well, this 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 still needs to get sorted out. So what do I do there? So from then onwards, I then went over to an eight section Zelda tent. So, A, I can stand up and get dressed in the morning, and I can still lie down properly. And, and this is where I cheated. This is where I just bought a modern-day fishing camp bed and put um, a reproduction blanket on it so no one can really see that it's a, a fishing bed. But you know what? It's the most comfortable thing I've slept on while I've been camping. No one can really see what it is, and I'm not going to break it. So I've, um, I've definitely cheated on the authenticity side of that, but I just, I just felt that in, in that scenario it's just a little bit more necessary because... You know, we all do reenacting. We we do it because we enjoy the hobby. We love the hobby, but we've got to make sure that we're you know we're, we're comfortable doing it as well. Because yeah, you could you know curl up in a in a four section cell bent, but you know you, you've got to really enjoy. Sure, it. it has to be fun. I agree, and uh, you know I think there is a lot of attention that happens in reenacting towards. Uh, realistic sleeping conditions how did they actually sleep and i think it's good for people to experience that at least once right but once you've kind of uh once you know the feeling of sleeping on the ground with a wool blanket um you know there's not that much that you can necessarily learn from doing it over and over and i can certainly see that there are Obviously, there are people who are kind of more attuned to other aspects of reenacting who like, whether it's uh, educating the public through historical interpretation or just participating in the battles or whatever. And they don't want to have uh, a ruined back from sleeping on the ground. You know, it's it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah, sure. And what we've what we've got amongst my reenactment friends is a very, a very common phrase. And it's uh, show me three photos. Now, what I what I mean by that, if you're doing something that's not necessarily the norm, or that's that people would question whether they did that or not, you have to produce three original photos of that actually getting done during the war. Now, so far, I've I've managed to get two um, photos of German soldiers sleeping on camp beds. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they're in the Africa campaign, but I've I've managed to get that. Um, Chris, I know you're a, an avid collector of of photographs. Um, but you know what I like about photographs is you know that the picture it does paint a thousand words, and I've I've tried to find as many photos as I can on, on how, how how they did sleep 
Um, and I've, I've got I've got one photo which I, I think I did share with you where I can only describe it as a blow-up mattress. And I've only got one example of this, and I'll, I'll have to put it I'll have to put it on the server so everyone else sure. can see it. But I can only describe it as as these German soldiers are sleeping on a, on a blow-up mattress. And I, I I saw the photo and I thought it was fascinating. Well, um, I've become kind of interested. There's a, a sort of a new type of living history hobby that's happening now. Uh, in the United States and probably in other places as well, where people are doing classic camping, where they are kind of recreating civilian camping from what they call the golden age of camping, which goes in in their definition from like 1880 to 1930. And so there are some Facebook groups that have arisen where people discuss this branch of living history. And I'm on there because I think it's very interesting. I think the clothing and gear and sort of the history of camping is interesting. And uh, one of the things that gets discussed on there quite a bit is blow-up mattresses. And people show photographs of catalogs that are offering blow-up mattresses for civilian use that are 100 years old or you know, or more than 100 years old in some cases. So there's no doubt that air mattresses did exist prior to and during World War II. And uh, you know, whether or not, to, to what extent it's appropriate for reenacting, I guess, depends on your exact impression and what is being uh, portrayed. But, but look, I think, um, you know, like you said, I, I know some reenactors who use very modern uh, things in camp that they conceal. And that's kind of what they need, what it takes for them to be comfortable. Um, you know, not everybody in reenacting is 20 years old. And some guys have physical jobs. They work hard all week. They are, they maybe have bad backs or they have some other medical thing or whatever, and they need a soft surface uh, to sleep on in order for them to participate in their hobby. And that's, you know, that's that's a reality for them. It's very interesting that you mentioned about the, the, the group that you're part of where you know, these blow-up mattresses can go, go back so far. I never, I never really knew that. Um, I definitely wouldn't bring a blow-up mattress to a, a World War II event. I'll never hear the end of it. But it's always interesting to, to gather as much original evidence as you can do, um, just, you know, if it's just for per- personal research. Yeah, I I almost don't even want to mention this because I can't actually find the (laughs) exact source, but I am pretty certain that I read a letter from a German soldier uh, one time where he's uh, expressing frustration that he has to blow up the officer's air mattress. You know, um, people during World War II were like people today in that they had different levels of tolerance for discomfort and... um, some people wanted to be as comfortable as possible, and there were ways for people to kind of get get a leg up on that a little bit. You know, obviously, a soldier who is uh, marching 20 or 40 miles a day or whatever with only what he can carry on his back living out of his pockets, he's not going to have an air mattress. But um, air mattresses did exist. Camp beds and cots, these things did exist. And, um, and even like, look, um, modern ones... Um, I'm not going to name names here. I think uh, the person who I'm about to talk about might listen to this and uh, you know who you are, but I have a friend. He's a little bit older. He works a physical job. And uh, after an event last year, he confided in me that he had bought a very low profile, small, modern blow up air mattress um, and that he had it in his tent underneath his wool blankets. Nobody saw it the whole event. Nobody knew it was there, but he said that it made a huge difference in how he felt when he woke up in the mornings. And, uh, 
you know, who I'm not going to tell that guy that he that he shouldn't be doing it or that he's reenacting wrong because because he's making this little compromise. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think that's one of the great things that I really enjoy um, about the World War Two era, because, you know, it wasn't that long ago and so much technology existed then. Um, and, you know, it's, it's so available today. And it, it... So what what did you finally settle on in the end for your sleeping situation? What What is it that uh, you're doing now that works for you? So what I've got now, I, I, I use a 12-section Zelt tent, um, 12 sections. It's it's essentially a, a, a square Zelt with a triangular top. So it's a, the, the four man's out on top and then square sides. And it's, it's very comfortable. I can stand up in it. I can get dressed in it. I can put all my gear in it. What I actually sleep on is I uh, I have cheated. I have used um, a very modern fishing uh, fishing bed, fold up fishing bed, um, but it's 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 super comfy. Um, doesn't matter how how many how many beers I drink. I don't, I don't think I'm ever I'm ever going to break that. Cool. What about bedding? You're using uh, like wool blankets on on that uh, fishing bed. So I do have a couple of wool blankets, um, and I also am I allowed to mention yeah. vendors. I've also got a a, a reproduction sleeping bag. Um, that I bought from Schuster's. Yeah, I've seen those. Those are nice. If the weather's cold, um, I've got um, a rabbit fur parka that I got from Schuster's as well. I, I paid the little extra to have the real rabbit fur in it, and that acts as a sleeping bag as itself. You know, I, I can just sleep in that thing without even needing a blanket. It's great. So I'll, I'll, lie, I'll lay down on the fishing bed and I'll either cover myself up with blankets in the sleeping bag or just in the parka, and I've, I've, nev- I've never been cold. That sounds great. The 12-person Zeltbahn tent is... Uh, it's a pretty big thing, and it requires like a, a long center pole. Am I right about that? That's correct, yeah. So you've got one long center pole in the, in, in the middle, and then you've got four shorter poles on each corner, and then you've got the sort of guide ropes on, on the outside of it. Um, it's not the easiest thing to sort of stitch together. Um, I, I, I managed to do it in my lounge um, after a, a few cans of Stella and, uh, and, and a few swear words. I, I, managed, I managed to do it. Um, I then tried to put it up in the garden because it was so big it didn't fit. So the, the, the real test was literally to traipse it to a reenactment event and just hope for the best. And, and luckily, I put it together all right. I, that sounds great. You know, um, I do think that a good night's sleep is is really, really valuable at a reenactment, especially where um, if it's a public display, if you're going to be interacting with the public, if you're going to be doing simulated battles, really, even, even if the public isn't there, if you're doing a... Um, a battle situation, it's inherently dangerous. And, uh, you know, if you haven't slept at all the night before, I think it can be kind of risky to be out there uh, shooting blanks at people when you're, you know, not 100% uh, mentally because you, you're you so exhausted. It is. And it also goes into the, the whole, you know, making sure that you enjoy the, the event. Um, for, for me, myself, nearly all the shows that I go to is at least a three hour drive there and a three hour drive back. And, you know, you've got, you've got to be careful that, you know, when you do drive back, you haven't had, you know, too many beers the night before, but, you, you know, you have had a good sleep. But also throughout the event, you know, for, for me, myself, um, I, I love collecting, uh, you know, personal effect items. And when I want to go around the vendors, I want to make sure that I'm in the right mindset when I'm when I'm buying something. I want to make sure that, A, I don't have the thing already. Um, I know what I'm buying. And, you know, you, you, if, 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 you, if you don't have a, a great night's sleep, you won't necessarily enjoy the battles. You start to resent it. And then when something when something needs happening, if a vehicle needs help, you know the, the gearbox goes on a vehicle and, and it needs pushing. You, you don't tend to enjoy it as much more. Um, you know, for me myself, I've got a, a two year old son at home, so I don't really get much sleep at home. Um, so when I go to a reenactment event, the last thing I need is less sleep sure. than what I get at home. And and I think it brings up kind of the question of uh, 
you know, is it is it necessary to endure at every event the deprivations that uh, field soldiers had to go through in World War II? You know, is it really necessary to rough it in order to do every style of reenactment? And I, you know, I certainly think a case can be made that it's it's not. I certainly agree. Um, all I can say is, from my experiences throughout the army, soldiers will find a way. Yes, there are situations where you'll dig a hole and you'll sleep in it, but if there's a barn up the road, you'll go and sleep in the barn. You know, so- soldiers soldiers will always find a way to make their lives as, as comfortable as they possibly yeah, can. Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, the there's like a counterpart to that where there is a style of reenacting where you try to make things as uncomfortable as you possibly can and sort of see what happens. You know? <laughs> but that's that's the thing about reenactment; it can be so many different things depending on what what you or your unit wanted to be or you know like I might go to an event that is extremely physically challenging and that I know is going to leave me exhausted and, and broken and then maybe the next event I go to might be one where I'm sleeping indoors in a in a heated place and on a comfortable bed with way more blankets than a soldier probably would have had access to and you know it's it's totally different. For me myself because I do more of an infantry role and um, it's there's there's always a lot to do there's a lot of parades there's a you know, you're marching in and out of battles, you've got battle briefings. Um, if you had a unit that did more sort of rear guard auxiliary stuff, which I, I know you're quite into, you've, you've got that sort of opportunity of, of, of not really dulling it down a little bit, but focusing on certain things as opposed to having to, to, to run around the place all the time. So you can, you can focus on, sure. on more things. Let's think about some other areas where authenticity compromises might be desirable or advantageous in certain situations at certain events. Um, you know, like, for example, uh, with cooking, you know, the challenges of, I mean, Absolutely. it can be, I, this uh, reenactment that I went to last weekend, the cooking situation was a real challenge for me. I had to make a meal for our group of guys. So it was, I think we had 12 people there. It was like a big pot full of soup. And the cooking setup was a, uh, it was a, a fireplace. And so you can choose between the pot is at like a million degrees or the pot is at zero degrees, basically. I didn't have any kind of pot support. It was a real challenge. So what wound up happening, of course, is that you basically, uh, you know, I'm trying to saute some onions. So I put them on the fire. They immediately start to burn, take it off the fire. Temperature goes back down to zero and then repeat that over and over. Had I had, ac- had, I had access to like a modern stove or something, it would have made things uh, much easier for me. And it wouldn't have been as realistic, the process of cooking. But the end result, the food that was prepared would have been, you know, it, pr- frankly, it probably would have been better Um it would have been more delicious for the people who were eating it. Um, you know, it's it can be, I, I think that there can be a, a case for um, if you have to do something, like if you have to make a meal for people, um, you know, maybe trying to use period type stuff that is, is time consuming and challenging to use and might result in burning some of the food might not always be your best option from a practical standpoint. Absolutely. And you've you, you got, you got to say to yourself, when do you call it quits? And should you really just gone down the burger van that's, that, that, that you can, that well, you can that, smell up the That road. is a very um, interesting point, you know, because uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to, to lie and say that I have never ducked out of the reenactment and gone to get some food in, in a situation where that was, you know, that I regarded that 
is my best option at that particular moment for whatever reason. It doesn't like invalidate that uh, that I'm that I'm at a reenactment if I if I leave the reenactment for an hour and come back, you know. Absolutely. Um, so for for me myself and, and my experiences for myself and my reenactment friends. Um, so we are fortunate to have a field kitchen, and we do we do bring it to the the larger events. Um, we don't do like hot stews or anything in it, um, but we do do like jacket potatoes and stuff. And it's, it's, a, it's a great old lump just to bring to an event for, to do jacket potatoes in, but it, it really does look the part. For me, myself, um, what, I, what I tend to do is in my tent, in a box, in a wooden box, I've got a, I've got a gas cooker. And when I wake up in the morning, I'll turn the gas cooker on and I'll make a cup of tea. I'll do it, no one can see it. We do usually have a campfire going on throughout the day, but you know what? In the morning, the last thing I want to do, just to make a cup of coffee, is to build a log fire, to boil up some water, and make a brew that way. So there, there, there are certain aspects of, of modern technology that I, I have I have utilised and, and cheated a little bit. Um, I mean, yeah, of course, I I have got um, a couple of stoves, post-war stoves, and everything like that. But it still involves traipsing petrol to and from an event, and that's got its own problems sure. as well. And of course, the reality is is that you could have a, a post-war stove or even an original camping stove that some soldiers might have been issued. But but look, not every soldier was issued stuff like that or was in a position to carry it with them from place to place. So on some level depending on how you look at it, even using period type cooking gear can be an authenticity compromise. You know, like I mentioned this event that I, I just did where I was cooking a meal in a fireplace, the reality is is that if this had taken place in a real World War II German military facility, there would have been a kitchen there and there would have been a kitchen staff making the meal for everybody, you know? So, um, yeah, so it kind of is like six, you know, sometimes it's like even the realistic option is itself kind of cheating. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to the scenario where you would have had, um, you know, that sort of field kitchen and, and everybody would have, you know, at a, um, at out of one large soup, soup bowl. Um, in the background, you probably would have had a barracks as well. So, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have had to have worried too much about having fishing beds and everything. So you, you'd have had an actual bed. You know, the, the, German, the German army, um, as they were moving across Europe, they, they, they occupied buildings, they op- occupied old army barracks. And, you know, the German soldiers didn't sleep That's outside absolutely all the time. right. You know, we use uh, Zeltbahn tents so much in reenacting. And, of course, they were used in World War II. They were used in a widespread way across different times and fronts. But sleeping in a Zeltbahn tent was not like the standard way that the field soldier slept anyway you know like you say they did commandeer civilian homes and um barns and kick people out of houses that's that's that was the reality of world war ii sure um i think where my my whole sleeping arrangements and everything that i'd like to go to in the future it brings on its own problems but i'd I'd like to get a nice original original truck i haven't quite worked out exactly which one yet there's there's a there's a nice one um up for sale at the moment um which is a a, a french truck that the, the german army used and i wouldn't mind converting that um and taking that to an event so i can drive to the event I can sleep in it and I can do living history by it, but then you've got the problem of where to store that, and I'm no mechanic. So I think I'll probably just stick with uh, with it with sure. a cell tent for now. I think uh, clothing is another area where um, sometimes you might want to make certain uh, compromises, like, uh, you know, it's kind of an individual judgment call about how. How important is it or isn't it to wear like uh, reproduction socks or period style underwear, for example? That's very true. And um, this makes me chuckle because it, it, it brings a flashback of a memory down to um, a show that you had on probably uh, a few months ago where 
there was um, an, an old gentleman at a, at a show that would go, went around to Sunbury and Axis and said, authenticity check. In, in the UK, um, I've, well, I've been quite lucky. Let me focus on socks, for example. I started off wearing um, normal hiking socks. No one could see them. I then moved over to reproduction socks. Now, I've, I've not managed to find a decent vendor that does decent reproduction socks that last. On the sock side of it, what I have managed to find, there's um, a, a female over in America, I, I forget what her name is, but her mum was a member of the BDM. And during the war, she sewed socks, she did sewing. And she's still alive today. And I've managed to purchase uh, five pairs of these socks and they are absolutely fantastic. They're super thick, they're wool, they're knitted. And, you know, if they ever do start to, to, to break away or to, or to wear away, I can easily sew them back up again and they'll be just as good as what they would have been. Sure, I think that woman who you're talking about is named uh, Monica Dressler. And she, she yes, actually lives not too far away from me. And I have a lot of stuff that her mother knit as well. And it certainly is awesome stuff. Um, but I, like you, I've had the problem with reproduction socks that they don't really tend to last for the most part. Um, and maybe that's how the original socks were. Maybe uh, I think I think you can find veteran uh, testimony that talks about soldiers wearing socks full of holes. I, you know, that may have been a reality for those guys. But uh, certainly for me, my feet are not accustomed to walking around in jackboots in uh, socks full of holes. So wearing some kind of more sturdy sock is definitely uh, something I prioritize as well. I've got uh, a local source also for machine knit wool socks that are thick and, and sturdy and uh, that's that's what I usually wear. Yeah and I think it's also you know what we often forget as as, as reenactors and and collectors is something simple like a pair of socks it, you know that was that was sought after in the 1940s there's a veteran alive at the moment uh, Gunther but I can't remember his his his, his, his uh, either first name or surname and he tells the story when he was a kid growing up in the 1930s. And, you know, even shoes, he, he wouldn't, his parents couldn't afford for him to have shoes throughout the 1930s in Germany. So he'd go shoeless in the summer. Um, and in, in the winter, he was allowed to wear shoes, but only in the winter because they cost really so much interesting. money. I think it, it can also be pointed out that not every German soldier in World War II was wearing the issue socks or foot wraps either. You know, they had opportunities to bring things from home or have things sent from home. And so, you know, not, not everybody needs to be wearing the the issue style of sock. Um, and and it, the same thing ex- extends to underwear. You know, there are reproductions of the issue type underwear, but, um, you know, depending on the type of event that you're at, if nobody's going to see it, and if your main focus, especially if your main focus at the event is kind of public facing stuff, you know, on some level, you have to ask yourself, what difference does it really make? You mentioned foot wraps. I completely forgot about foot wraps. Am I? The concept of, of foot wraps in, in, in this modern day is, is, is unheard of, but, you know, socks was, um, it was a luxury item um, back in the day. Um, well, look, for me, for, for underwear, um, I'll, I'll openly admit it on, um, on, on podcast, um, I, I do have reproduction underwear from Newman Industries. Um, but, but, you know, when, when you're running around all day long throughout the battles and everything, I do the same, the same thing what I did in the army, and I just don't bother. Um, I, I go pure commando, and I wear my, my combat trousers, and I've got, I've got my shirt over the top, and no, no one knows, but for me, that, that's a that lot more That sounds so uncomfortable to me that I can't even put it in words. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that just goes to show, you know, what's, what's comfortable for one person might be wildly uncomfortable for another person. Everybody has a different uh, comfort zone and a different idea of how far they're willing to get out of that zone for the sake of historical realism. You know, I, I think a lot about like the 
um, sort of the times that I've cheated and the events at which I will uh, sort of take some creative liberties. Um, and a lot of times it comes down to sort of very personal stuff, hygiene type stuff or, or food that literally nobody is going to see. Um, and I, I like an, an example is I, at some events, um, if I'm going to be there for a few days, I bring the period style razor and shave gear like what a German soldier might have carried in the field in World War II. And myself and the guys in my group will heat up some water and put it into a basin and kind of have a communal shave in the morning. And it's it's realistic and it's fun. But a lot of the time, if I'm going to be going to an event that's only two days long, I make sure I just shave right before the event at home. And then uh, I don't have to worry about shaving at the event. And um, especially for like winter events or places where it might be tough to heat up water for a shave, I find that to be sort of the best option for me. Shaving is quite an interesting one, actually. Um, I do shave out of um, a nice original enamel bowl. Um, I, I do have an original German razor that so far at every event that I've gone to, I've used it. I, I, I do question myself whenever I pack it. I think, am I really going to cut myself again? Anyway, so I take that with me, and then after I've had my shave and everything, I put a modern-day... Um, uh, lotion on my face to, to 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 stop my skin from drying out. So it's it's almost ironic when you go through the whole the whole um, authentic shave and then and then you smother your face with a, a sure. modern day moisturizer at the end. Uh, I'm thinking back like to the reenactment that I went to over the weekend and uh, I saw. I don't smoke, but one of my friends was at the event. A guy from a different group, and he was uh, going to light a cigarette, and I kind of was looking at him out of the corner of my eye because he was using a modern plastic bic lighter and uh i think he noticed that i noticed and he said look i i gave up on using period type lighters i have a bunch but they just run out of fuel so quickly that i just find it to be totally impractical and uh you know i i'm not gonna argue with with someone if if you know he needs to be able to have a smoke and uh you know if if his period lighter that he that he bought and restored doesn't work because it it runs out of fuel too quick i mean i, I can't I'm not going to tell someone that they absolutely have to use something like that. Well, that's it. Um, and you're totally right. And it, it goes into the, the whole cooking thing as well. You know, you can't just carry petrol around your meat to every event in the event that your pet, you know, your lighter needs refueling and everything like that. But it's also the cost of it as well. So, you know, something simple like having um, a, a nice period lighter, you know, it's, it's at risk of, of, you know, potentially getting stolen. And if, and if you do lose it either at the beer tent or something like that, it's, it's not, it's not the cheapest yes, thing. Depending on what it is, it might be, it might basically be irreplaceable, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I guess, Kind of the overarching thing here, something that I think about is, you know, what is actually the purpose of this, of me participating in this activity? You know, it, my approach will be different if the purpose for me is to really get the feeling that for 24 hours I lived exactly like the the World War II soldier. Or if the purpose of the event is to maybe participate in putting on a show to do some drill to maybe have fun participating in a mock battle or enjoy checking out period vehicles or maybe riding on a tank. You know, that's my approach to these events will be different depending on what I want to get out of the specific event. Yeah, sure. You, you also, you know, you pack accordingly, don't you? You, you, you pack, you'll pack your gear to the event that you want to portray that you want to do. And for, for, for me, it's, it's, it's what to bring to an event is always, always the tricky part because you, you, you can, you can never bring 
too much stuff. I mean, you, you can bring too much stuff, but when, when, you, when you're packing everything, you're looking around your collection, you think, well, I'll need that, I might need this, and I might need that, and then and before you know it, you need, you know, you, you need a truck or something. No, sure. I totally understand. Um, so what, what have you got uh, planned for 2023? Where are, you know, for, for those listeners who are in Europe or in the UK, where could they see Second Battle Group this coming year? Well, there's a few shows that I am attending this year. The best show that um, I would recommend everybody would be um, Military Odyssey. Um, we will be at Military Odyssey. I will be at Military Odyssey. And if anybody is, is interested in, in reenacting or if anyone's got any queries or questions on the group, it's the best place to come along because you can come along, talk to myself. Um, my English name's Tim. Everybody knows me there. I can, I can walk you around all the equipment that we've got walk through all the tents and you'll be absolutely amazed of the level of knowledge that the that the members of the group have got we can interact together and if you were interested in any aspect of it you don't have to be an infantry soldier we we do have um other other positions that we also need to refer we know we've got the flak we've got the packs we've got you know we've got stood crews that we need even something simple to um where it comes down to looking looking after the uh, equipment that's on the site when we're doing the battle scenarios so the and so the, the, the felt police and, and stuff like that. So there's, 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 there's so much there. So definitely Military Odyssey will be the best show um, to, to come. Have a look at us. You can see us in action. You can see us in the battles. And it's, it's probably the best show to come along and have a really good chat with that us. sounds great. I wish I could go. Sounds like a great event. We'd love you to come, Chris. Um, is there some place online for people who can't make it to the event where they could maybe find out more information about Second Battle Group? On, 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 on Facebook, um, just Google my name. It's it's Tim Knott. Please feel free to private message myself. I'm absolutely fine with it, um, and I can also pass on any membership details over to um, the relevant people our side as well. Um, but if you've got any questions on the group, then me- you know message me privately, and I'm I'm more than happy to talk everybody through it as well. I took a Panther store, M42 Feldblüse, and this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad, and I boiled this uniform into nothing and it reduced itself into a um, a woolen soup. That was a a real nightmare. It's really different to do reenactment in France, Italy, or even England, because there are countries that suffered from the war. In Switzerland, people are quite open, and I never got any negative reaction. There was a time where I thought, oh man, we're going to really be struggling with recruits this year. But I don't know if it's because people were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because of COVID. But our recruitment actually has astronomically risen. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Tim, it's been really great talking to you. Uh, I've, uh, I really enjoy hearing your perspective on this stuff. Thank you, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, too. It's been um, an ambition of mine to get on the show for quite a while now. Great. Well, I'm really glad we were able to make it work out, and I'm really uh, I'm thankful to Mike AK Retroman for setting up this uh, this chat. So thanks to Mike. Likewise. All right. On that note, uh, thank you again, Tim. Thank you to all of the Patreon supporters, without whom we wouldn't be able to keep the show on the air. And uh, to Tim and to everybody else out there, I will see you in the field. See you in the field. We love hearing your thoughts on the podcast, so why not sign up to the Reenactors Corner on Discord? You'll find a link in the show notes that accompany this episode. And while you're there, perhaps have a think about supporting us via Patreon. Your regular donations, no matter how big or small, really count and help keep us on the air. Thanks to Mike, aka Retroman, for editing the podcast. And we hope that you'll join us here again soon for the next episode of the Reenactors Corner.